All right. Well, uh, you note on the overhead, we are studying Colossians and the theme is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, real strong emphasis in chapter one on the supremacy of Christ. We're going to really nail down the sufficiency of Christ tonight as we get into chapter two. So that's the theme of, of Colossians. I am selective here. I can't say everything here. That's why I'm giving you a commentary. So I, I'm trying to go slower, but it's not easy to try to cover the material I want to cover. It's kind of like when I get to the end of the sermon on Sundays and I've got five minutes and six pages. So anyway, uh, hang on. Uh, we'll see what we can do here. Uh, we're picking it up on page 26 and uh, Colossians 124. Uh, notice what it says there. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, you understand Paul was in a Roman prison at this point. This is one of the prison epistles. So that's the context. And he is writing to this largely Gentile church and saying that uh, he is uh, he's rejoicing in these sufferings uh, that he might fill up. In my flesh, what is lacking of the of the afflictions of Christ? The the question is, what does that mean? Uh, skip that next paragraph and uh, come down to the one that begins. Specifically, Paul knew he was in prison largely for the sake of the Gentile church. The church at Colossae was largely Gentile, and Paul had never met them face to face. Recall that when Paul was in Jerusalem, he made his defense before the Jews, and as he did so, they listened to him until he mentioned the word Gentile. Then they called for his death, which set in motion a chain of events that landed him in the Roman prison he currently occupied. So that's the context. He is here really because of his uh, ministry to the Gentiles and how he had spoken out in that regard. So uh, next paragraph. So clearly Paul was suffering on their behalf and for their benefit as he served as the apostle to the Gentiles. Note that uh, in bold there where it says, and fill up my f- uh, in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Well, this phrase has caused no uh, small amount of discussion. Uh, Paul has just emphasized Christ's all-sufficient reconciling work, as we have noted, and he goes on to emphasize Christ's all-sufficient work on the cross again in chapter 2. Therefore, evangelical commentators are all in agreement that Paul is not talking about anything lacking in terms of his redemptive sufferings. In other words, when Christ suffered on the cross, that was a once-for-all suffering, his death for the sins of the world. Nothing is lacking in that regard. So uh, note on the cross, Christ uh, cried out, it is finished. Hebrews 1.3 says, by himself he purged our sins. Hebrews 10.14 says, by one offering he has perfected forever. There's nothing lacking there. In terms of sacrifice for sin, there is no more suffering for Christ. Next page. However, in terms of building his church, in one sense, there are afflictions that Christ continues to experience. Uh, we see this, for example, when Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus. Uh, let me put it on the overhead here. <clears throat> Notice what he said to, to Saul. Uh, of course, Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, this is Jesus saying this to Saul. Why are you persecuting me? 
Saul said, nothing against you. It's just these people over here. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, you're persecuting me. And in fact, when you're persecuting my people, the church. So note, you see, Paul was not directly persecuting Jesus, but he was doing so indirectly in that he was persecuting Christ's body of believers. This is the sense that we have here. Christ, as a man of sorrow, suffered great afflictions in his earthly ministry. Those afflictions continue today in the form of the persecution of his body. However, God is sovereign over all that happens, and there is a limit to how far this will go. Uh, one day, this allotment will be filled up. God will deliver his church, and there will be no more afflictions of Christ in reference to his body. So we think that's what Paul is talking about here. Uh, note, uh, come down to the bold towards the bottom of the page there. For the sake of his body, which is the church. The afflictions of Christ that Paul uh, is undergoing are for the sake of the universal church. For the sake of the church. And then note verse 25. Colossians 1.25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Next page. Page 28. In verse 23, uh, Paul says that he became a minister of the gospel. Here in verse 25, he says he became a minister to the church. And of course, the word minister means one who serves. And note the next line there, uh, the next couple sentences. Uh, the word stewardship is based on a compound Greek word. Uh, those two words, oikos means house, uh, nemo uh, means manage. It means to manage a household for someone else as a stewardship responsibility. In the Roman Empire, often wealthy landowners put trusted slaves in charge of their households. So this word came to represent responsibility, authority, and obligation given to a trusted manager. Uh, so that's the idea of stewardship. Uh, one who is given a, a responsibility to manage for someone else. Uh, Paul's ministry to the church was a stewardship responsibility given to him by God. It was specifically directed to the Gentiles. Okay, uh, note the bold there, to fulfill the word of God. Uh, note the two points under that, generally to, to make the word of God uh, fully known in the sense of declaring the whole counsel of God. Yes, he's fulfilling the word in that sense, but more probably, specifically to make known the mystery of the church, which had previously been hidden. Uh, skip the next sentence. What God gave Paul to do as a stewardship responsibility was to most clearly reveal the truth of the church. This was his unique stewardship responsibility. What we know about church truth, we largely know through Paul. His contribution, humanly speaking, to the word of God essentially relates to the doctrine of the church. If you want to know about the church, study Paul. You think about that. You think about the New Testament. Who is it that developed the doctrine of the church in, in the New Testament scriptures? Largely the Apostle Paul. Um, <clears throat> you want to know about love and you want to know about evidences of uh, uh, true conversion. You look at 1 John. Uh, you look at the Gospels as far as the uh, ministry of Christ and culminating his death and his resurrection. But where do you go as far as the church? Acts is kind of a history of the early church. But you really wait until you get into the epistles of Paul as he develops the doctrine of the church. That's this mystery that he's talking about that he was uh, responsible for. And so notice verse 26. Uh, Colossians 1, 26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, 
but has but now has been revealed to his saints. So he's talking about this mystery that is now being revealed through him. Uh, note Paul qualifies the word of God at the end of verse 25 by calling it the mystery in verse 26. Next page. <clears throat> mystery in the New Testament refers to that which can only be known by divine revelation. It was truth previously hidden, but is now revealed. So uh, we understand this. Uh, A mystery in the Bible is something you would not know apart from God revealing. It's a divine secret. We only know it because God revealed it to us. And the secret in view here, the mystery that's been revealed, is the the truth of the church. Uh, I've got a little diagram in your book, but here's another one. Old Testament believer, this is how uh, the Old Testament believers such as Isaiah would have seen this. We call this kind of telescoping. They saw prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ. They, they saw that. Um, be a man of sorrows and so forth. Uh, Isaiah 53. But, and they also saw the second coming of Christ. So they saw prophecies related to the first coming. They didn't put it all together. They were thinking this was all together in one, one time here maybe. But uh, they did see the truth of the first coming and the second coming. They saw the mountaintop peaks of these. But they didn't see this valley in between. This church age, it was unseen. It was a mystery. It was a divine secret. Who has the responsibility? Who has the stewardship to bring this out? God gave it to Paul. And Paul told us about it. That's what he's telling us here. And of course, this has been going on for about 2,000 years. And how long is the church age going to go on? Yeah, that's right. Till the rapture, which is going to happen? Anytime. Anytime. Yeah, that's right. We don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen at any time. That's why we're to live ready. That's right. Okay, uh, note under the uh, diagram there, the bold, but has now been revealed to his saints. What had previously been hidden has now been revealed to God's saints. That is to the church. That's to us, right? To us as believers. Uh, Colossians one twenty seven. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice, uh, God has willed to make known to us saints the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is it? What is the the defining factor for the church? The defining reality? Well, it's that we are the temple of the living God. God lives in us. That's the common denominator among all believers. We have like faith, and and the reality is that God lives inside of us. As he puts it here, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It was to the saints of this age, on this side of the cross, that God willed to reveal the truth of the church. What Paul describes as the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And uh, it is true the Gentiles were seen in the Old Testament in terms of that the Gentiles too would be saved... But the truth of the church was a new concept. And the part we would have uh, where we would be on an equal spiritual footing with the Jews. Let's go to the next page. Top of page 30 there. Uh, here's the crux of it in bold there. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a mind blower. Uh, that the Messiah would dwell with Israel was clearly taught in the Old Testament. But that he would actually dwell in close fellowship with Gentiles was unthinkable to pious Jews. You have to realize they wouldn't even shake hands with a Gentile. Unclean. You wouldn't want to do that. 
You don't want to have any association with Gentiles. To now reveal that he would actually dwell in Gentiles as well as in Jews on an equal basis was radical beyond comprehension. You have to realize just how absolutely radical this was. Uh, This is the heart of the mystery of the church. Christ now lives in believers, both Jew and Gentile. The very essence of salvation is Christ in you. This is the essence of the church as well. Okay, next paragraph. So many people make a profession of faith, but there's no evidence that Christ really lives in them. Where is Christ in the life? Is he to be found? That's the ultimate issue. If you're a true believer, Christ lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. God's Spirit lives in you. Uh, Next next paragraph there. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. If Christ is not in you, then you have no hope of glory. The radical thing is that not only is this glorious reality extended to believing Jews, but also to believing Gentiles. We too have the Messiah, and we have him living inside us. This is what changes our lives. This is what makes the difference. This is glorious indeed. Bottom of the page here. Uh, So the glory of Christ living in you is the basis for the glory to come. There is a lot of glory in the experience of the believer and throughout all eternity that we we will bask in his glory. Life and eternity for us as believers is to experience God. Our whole being is wrapped up in him. And think of it. We Gentiles are privileged to experience God on this level just as the Jews. Okay, next page, page 31. Colossians 1.28, him, that's speaking of Jesus Christ, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Here's the goal. Uh, Paul's message was very simple, very clear. Paul said, him we preach, referring to Jesus Christ. At core, what Paul and his associates preached was Christ. That's it. Uh, Come down to the middle of the page. Uh, Paul's ministry was both negative and positive in tone. First, a negative. This warning ministry is general. It could apply to believers or unbelievers. I tend to see a progression here where the emphasis moves from warning to teaching to presenting. Uh, Warning, most naturally then, would seem to relate to sin and judgment and the need for repentance. What people do with Jesus is between them and God. But our job in evangelism is to lovingly warn them of judgment to come. We are to be lovingly warning everyone. And frankly, until people get saved, our ministry is largely one of warning. Uh, I think that's why God gave the book of Revelation to the church. I mean, if, if the church is truly going to miss the tribulation, which I'm totally convinced it is, uh, why do we need to know about this? Right? It doesn't matter. We're not going to be here. We don't even need to worry or think about it. And busy our minds with it. Unless, of course, we're here to uh, warn others. Here's what's coming if you don't repent. So uh, our ministry, until people get saved, is largely one of warning. However, once they get saved, it shifts to positive teaching. And teaching every man in all wisdom. Teaching means instruction. Once people are saved, they still need to be taught so that they will know how to live the Christian life. Uh, Note at the bottom of the page, a little application here. I wonder if one reason we see so little growth in the American church is because so few are doing one-on-one work. We expect the pastor or someone else to do evangelism. We expect the pastor or someone else to do the follow-up. Next page. Well, if one-on-one is the pattern, a pastor is not going to get too far, right? 
I mean, that's true. Not going to get far. This is a whole body thing. The whole body needs to be doing this. We need a whole army of people doing one-on-one evangelism and one-on-one discipleship. Under the reference there, the goal for every Christian is to mature to the point where they can be sharing with others. Not all are going to be formal teachers, but all should uh, seek to be mature so where they can build the truth of the gospel into the lives of new converts. Uh, Come down just to uh, where the bold is in the middle of the page, just above that. Here then is the end goal, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. In verse 22, we saw that Christ, based on his reconciling work, will present the believer to God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. We saw that last night. This relates to our position in Christ. You can't be any more perfected than you are in Christ positionally. The blood of Christ totally perfects you forever and ever. However, in verse 28, the presenting is by the human agent as one who is bringing an offering to God. In effect, this is Paul and his co-workers presenting to God their life's work as seen in the people they were building into. This relates to the practice of every man. The word perfect denotes completion, mature, or that which is fully developed. Okay, let's go to the next page, page 33. Put this reference up here. I guess I don't have Philippians, so let's, we'll hold off on that. Okay. Uh, Under the reference there, uh, Philippians 2.16. Paul saw his converts as a spiritual investment. If they didn't go on for the Lord, he would not have a return on them. Uh, The true treasure is in the people. God is all about people. Our work is all about people winning them to Christ and then seeing them grow in Christ. I really think this is what uh, Judgment Day is largely going to be about. How did I build into people for the cause of Christ? Reaching them and then building in them, into them to see them grow. What, what was I doing? That's what, that's what God's doing in the world. That's what he wants to do with us, his body. Okay, Colossians 1.29. Paul puts his all into this. Notice verse 29. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. The word labor means to toil to the point of exhaustion. Note Paul's effort and and commitment involved here. But he does not just do this in the power of his own strength. Notice what he says. Striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Uh, The word striving is uh, the word from which we get our English word agonize. It's an athletic term related to wrestling. It signifies an intense struggle. And yet God's power is operative in Paul in a mighty way. Uh, Let's uh, jump to the next page, page 34. And the third paragraph down there, Paul summarizes that his strategy in ministry is to warn people, to teach them all to the end that he may present them as perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. Paul gives his all to this great mission. He labors intensively and strives intensively according to God's energizing power working through him. This is all important, and Paul gives his all to it. It's all about people. It's all about the church that Christ is building. But specifically, how do people come to maturity? It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Paul shares his struggle and what's involved in seeing the church come to maturity. And that's where he goes. Let's uh, continue on there. Colossians 2.1. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul says, I haven't met you guys. I know about you. But I have a great conflict that's going on, a spiritual battle that's going on for you. 
Well, in what way is he battling for them? And what kind of a conflict is Paul engaged in uh, for their sake? Well, the thought of this verse continues on from 128-29, where Paul shares that he labors intensively. Uh, Paul is a great encourager. His whole thing was to build up believers. One great way to encourage believers is to tell them you pray for them. In Paul's case, it was not just casual praying, but intense praying. He wants the Colossians to know how fervently he is praying for them. The phrase great conflict, most commentators believe, is a reference to prayer. So when he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you, he's talking about engaging in in the struggle of prayer for them, is what would seem to be the idea. Skip uh, the next paragraph there. How many of us think in terms of prayer, in terms of great conflict, great striving, great struggling on behalf of others? To make time for prayer, to pray fervently is a struggle. Prayer is work. It really is. Okay, uh, next page, page 35. He says, you have not seen my face in the flesh. It is thought uh, to refer to to all whom he mentions because uh, we have no record of Paul having been either to Colossae or to Laodicea or in that immediate area. So uh, even so, he had a great concern for these people and he was praying fervently for them. And he goes on to mention several specific things now that he's wrestling in prayer for them. Verse 2, Colossians 2.2. 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all Riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So he's praying. Let's pick out just a few things here, what he's praying for them. Uh, He's praying about them being knit together in love. This thought flows out of the previous one. The idea is that hearts are strengthened in connection with being knit together in love. The next bold line there, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding... Uh, The idea seems to be here, when love dominates the fellowship, it fosters the strengthening of hearts, and more specifically, it promotes assurance. So uh, he's praying to that end for them. Page 36. To the knowledge, at the top there, the bold, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. The older manuscripts literally read, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, of Christ. They omit the phrase, both of the Father and Christ. And as represented in the, the New American Standard there. So what, is this, uh, so what this phrase is saying refers to the attaining of the knowledge of the mystery of the incarnation. The fact that God was in Christ in bodily form. Skip the next line there. In 127, we see the mystery of how the Gentiles are now on an equal spiritual footing with the Jews. And that Christ now in the church age indwells both Gentiles and Jews. Next uh, next line there. However, in this immediate verse, the mystery in view refers to the reality of who Christ is as God manifested in the flesh. This too was a mystery, which God had not revealed. If he had not revealed it to us, would not have been known. Okay, under the uh, expositor's quote, Paul is driving to a particular point of understanding he wants to emphasize. So we are coming to a major point in the book. And that point is brought out in verse 3. This is one of the key points in the whole book. So note carefully, verse 3. He's talking about Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, The clear antecedent of whom, when it says in whom are hidden all the treasures, uh, the clear antecedent of whom is Christ as seen in verse 2. 
Therefore, in whom is a reference to Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's where you find them. Now, if you don't know Christ, you don't have any of the spiritual uh, treasures. Uh, Note that not merely some of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, but all the treasures, all the treasures. This means that Christ is the full answer to all spiritual knowledge and wisdom. Everything that can be known about God is found in Christ. Next page, page 37. Right in the middle of the page. The point is, it's all about Jesus. It's all found in Jesus. He is enough. He is sufficient in terms of God, in terms of spiritual insight. It's all found in Jesus. He is all we need. Indeed, to look anywhere else for truth to meet our spiritual needs is an outright denial of the sufficiency of Christ. This is spiritual wealth. It is a wealth in understanding. It is riches in terms of knowledge and truth. And it's all found in Jesus. Uh, jump down to the next verse, Colossians 2.4. Now this I say, and he's, he's emphasizing this for a particular reason, that everything in terms of spiritual uh, riches, in terms of wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. And he says, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Tremendous application here as far as where we're at today. The deceivers are among us in a big way. Uh, Paul has just emphasized the all-sufficiency of Christ as seen in verses 1 through 3 because he has a concern about smooth-talking deceivers who were on the scene. Let's go to the next page, page 38, top of the page. Many reject a Christ-alone message, saying it's too simplistic and that life is much more complicated than that. I mean, if you've got really deep problems, you better look for somebody else other than a pastor who knows the Bible because you're going to need some real answers, folks. You understand this, right? You need professional help. (laughs) Well, if it's a spiritual problem we're dealing with, uh, it depends maybe what your problem is, but if we're talking about a spiritual problem, don't tell me we need more than Christ. Don't tell me we need more than the Bible. That's plain heresy. And yet a lot of people buy into that. Don't be deceived with persuasive words. Christ is sufficient for all spiritual problems. Colossians 2.5 For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So he has concerns, and yet he's encouraged by what he's been hearing, the feedback he's been getting about the the church there in Colossae. Uh, Note under the bold, although Paul has concerns about deceivers on the scene, yet his overall perspective is one of rejoicing in the Colossian believers. He is rejoicing to see, to hear of their good order. The word order is actually a military term. It speaks of an orderly array of disciplined soldiers. Steadfastness refers to that which is solid and firm. So he's commending them for their, for their stand. Uh, next uh, paragraph. Uh, a couple down. Uh, Satan always aims at the weak link, whether it be an area of compromise in an individual's life, whether it be uh, the weak link of a marriage, whether it be the weak link of a family member, or whether it be a weak link in the congregation. Satan always tries to take advantage of the weak link and then goes on from there to spread havoc to the greatest extent possible. You understand we're in a spiritual warfare and Satan is strategizing. How can I cause havoc in the group? How can I get into the family? What can I do? He's, he's a master at what he's doing. It's spiritual warfare. 
And he is commending these folks for their, for their good order, as, in effect, being disciplined soldiers, where there wasn't a weak link there. Uh, come down to the next paragraph. When one falls, whether it be individually or corporately, it essentially always goes back to an errant view of Christ. Somewhere, compromise regarding a proper view of Christ was allowed to infiltrate the life, and Satan used it to bring them down. Therefore, we must ever stand firm in our faith. We must not compromise on the person of Christ or the work of Christ. We must not compromise in doctrine or in practice. Verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So he has just spoken of their faith in Christ. They receive Christ by faith. This is how we receive him. Now they need to continue to walk by faith. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. Next page. I'm going to let uh, William McDonald summarize it for us. Note there in the middle of the page, the quote. The emphasis here seems to be on the word Lord. As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Uh, the emphasis is on the word Lord. In other words, they had acknowledged that in him there was complete sufficiency. He was enough. Not only for salvation, but for the whole of their Christian life. Now Paul urges the saints to go on acknowledging the Lordship of Christ. So walk in him. Walk refers to daily conduct, how we order our lives. In salvation, we receive Jesus as Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Next paragraph. Paul's challenge to the believers is to walk consistently with how they had received Christ Jesus, the Lord. To walk consistently with the reality of his sufficient lordship. I mean, how big is our Lord? How strong is he? How sufficient is he? Let's walk consistently with that. What are we looking to other philosophies? What are we looking to, to other whatever out here? That's what the emphasis here is. Colossians 2.7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. The idea of rooted uh, is in the perfect tense indicating completed action with continuing results. And it relates back to conversion. At salvation, they were rooted in Christ. Paul takes them back to their, if you will, spiritual roots established in salvation. And built up in him. Built up is in the present tense. Refers to an ongoing process whereby they were more and more becoming like Christ. They've been rooted in Christ. And now they are to build on that reality. And established in the faith as you have been taught. Next page. Established is also in the present tense, indicating this too is to be an ongoing process. Now, the challenge here is to be, uh, in the middle of the page here, the challenge is to be consistent with what they've already been taught about Christ and then to build on it. Abounding with thanksgiving. Abounding with thanksgiving. Abounding is also present tense. Uh, This abounding with thanksgiving is not to be a once a year thing. It's to be a continual thing. Abounding is a word that uh, was used in reference to a river that has overflowed its banks. Uh, He wants them to be very thankful for all they have in Christ. So note, uh, what are the marks of maturity Paul emphasizes here? Number one, attaining to a full assurance of understanding with regard to who Christ is as the incarnate God. Number two, a consistent stand in regard to the sufficiency of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of spiritual wisdom and knowledge. Number three, a consistent walk in keeping with Christ's lordship. And number four, growing in Christ, grounded in the faith and abounding in gratefulness for all we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's kind of a summary there. 
So note, I've got a little story here, the indent there. A story is told about William Randolph Hearst, the late newspaper publisher. He invested a fortune collecting unique works of art. One day he read about a valuable piece of art that he decided he wanted to purchase at any cost. He sent his agent around the world looking for it. Finally, the agent reported back, informing him that indeed he had found the valuable work of art. It had been in one of his many warehouses all along. He had purchased it years ago and forgot about it. Well, I say that's an apt illustration of the experience of many Christians. They look far and wide for what they already possess in Jesus. In him, we already have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let us stand firm in him with lives abounding with thanksgiving. Okay, uh, top of next page, Colossians 2.8. You understand what we're talking about here, right? The sufficiency of Christ. We've talked about the, the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1. And now the sufficiency of Christ flows out of that. This is a major doctrine in the, in the book of Colossians. For us as God's people, we need to believe we have a, a big Christ, a sufficient Christ. Uh, no matter what comes our way, spiritually speaking, got medical issues, that's it's a whole other story. And there are real medical issues that have to be addressed, certainly. But uh, we're talking spiritual issues here. Colossians 2.8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. So he's saying, watch out. He's talking to Christians here. Christians can get off track and get derailed. I don't think they're going to completely apostatize, completely walk away from the faith, but they can get off track. It can be where he says, cheated. It can be cheated. In what way can you be cheated, do you suppose? Your salvation is secure, right? Yes. <laughs> you can be a little more affirmative on that. Uh, so, so what are we concerned about? What can we lose? Rewards. Rewards. Joy our, in our experience, our walk with the Lord, our fruitfulness, right? All of those kinds of things. So, yeah, so there's a lot to think about there. Uh, Colossians 2.8, uh, note right under that, beware means to watch out or be alert because of potential danger. Uh, come down to the next bold uh, there, lest anyone cheat you. The word cheat literally means to carry off booty or the spoils of war. So it is the idea of being taken captive. In our common vernacular, the idea of hijacked is essentially the idea. Paul is saying, don't let anyone hijack you away from the truth of Christ and his sufficiency. Don't let anyone move you in your thinking about Christ. You know, one of the major battles, and, and you wouldn't know it, especially if you haven't been around here very long, that I have been involved in in my ministry is over this whole issue of the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of the word of God. Uh, that's kind of out now. We like to think that man can make a contribution here with all of his wonderful wisdom. And you know, the best of both worlds is we have the Bible, but we also got all of this other professional wisdom. And we just need to bring it all. There's where you're really fully equipped. You know, the problem with that is it denies the sufficiency of Christ. That's my problem right there. He says, don't let anyone cheat you. Don't let anyone move you in your thinking about Christ. Don't be cheated. Christ cares how you view him, how you see him, who you look to for your spiritual needs, for the wisdom and the knowledge that is needed to address the spiritual problems of life. Don't let anyone cheat you. Next uh, emphasis there, through philosophy. 
The word philosophy means love of wisdom. And all the world loves wisdom. And we like wisdom. We pay, we pay booga bucks to get their wisdom, right? We get little degrees. I got the wisdom of the world. I love it. <laughs> the Greek has a definite article here. So it literally says the philosophy, meaning a particular philosophy is in view. By philosophy, Paul means theories about God and the meaning of life. Any theory that claims to have the meaning of life is a philosophy. And if you are theories about life and God that are contrary to Christ. On the one hand, we have what Christ says. On the other hand, we have what the world says. Who are we going to listen to? That is the issue. And people love to spin theories. Oh my goodness. We love to spin theories. Uh, who are we? Why are we here? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Let's spin. Th- the world out here is just spinning with theories. They have no idea. I mean, just kind of like hung in space here, suspended in space. They're not grounded in anything. They claim this and they claim that as the answers to life's problems. We have therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, spiritualists galore. There's no shortage of philosophers. But in particular in view is religious philosophy related to the deepest questions in life, such as who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? For the believer, the answers to the ultimate questions of life are all found in Christ. That's where we find the answers. Skip the next paragraph. The love of the world, uh, the love of worldly wisdom exalts human reasoning above divine revelation. This is the essence of the whole issue. Will we believe God or will we go with the reasonings of man? Will we believe that indeed In Christ, we have all we need in terms of spiritual wisdom, or will we look to the theory, speculations, and philosophies of men? Next page. We're not going to cover much here, but I deal pretty much extensively here with uh, the issue of evolution. Can you believe there's there's, uh, most of, of God's people out here, professing God's people, believe in what they call theistic evolution? You know where to find that in the Bible, right? Uh, that's right. I don't know where to find it there. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that God used evolution. You know what he did? Ex nihilo. He just created. He spoke and it was done. I mean, he didn't need any processes here. Well, we're going to wait billions and billions and billions of years for the next process. No, no, no. Uh, and the reason theistic evolution really became kind of popular is because, you know what? The Christians kind of were looked down on like kind of Neanderthals believing in this creation account. That's so stupid. We've now got intellectuals who are saying, it evolved. And if you're going to be smart like the rest of us, you're going to get on board. So they say, well, we need to figure this out. Maybe we can get God. God did it, but he did it through evolution. That's respectable, right? That's worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. Uh, Many things we could bring in there. Bottom of the page 42 to wrap up here. Uh, Right at the bottom there. The great issue in the church today is to have a proper view of Christ. That is the ultimate issue. Everything else flows from that in our understanding and living. Well, let's uh, have a break. I'll pray and then we'll have a break here for 20 minutes. Lord, again, we thank you for your word tonight. And uh, we see not only is Christ supreme, uh, supreme over all others, uh, the creator of all, but uh, also he is uh, sufficient, sufficient. For whatever we're dealing with in our spiritual lives. 
And so, Lord, uh, we see the importance of holding to this doctrine. And to not hold to it is really to be cheated spiritually. So, Lord, help us to be faithful in our stand for you on the truth of, of who Jesus Christ is and his sufficiency. Lord, bless the refreshments. We thank you for them and for the hands of prepared them now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. See you back in 20 minutes. Okay. Well, welcome back. We'll, uh, let's get started here as far as our last session here. And we're going to kind of pick it up midstream since that's where we left off here. Now, let's turn to page 43 and note uh, the footnote at the top here. And what I say there is Paul is not saying it is wrong to study various philosophies or to know about them. Rather, the concern is that God's people not be taken captive in their thoughts by philosophy that takes away from or distorts from the truth of Christ. So uh, that's, that's the issue. And, uh, you know, there may be some common sense things even involved that are helpful at certain points. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't deny that. But when we get into spiritual truth, as far as, you know, our spiritual lives, uh, ultimate questions, uh, Christ has a corner on that completely. Okay, uh, empty deceit, middle of the page, page 43. <clears throat> the, whole, the whole phrase, more literally, would read, through philosophy, which is an empty deceit. Empty deceit uh, qualifies philosophy. These are empty lies. And then uh, note the next paragraph, according to the tradition of men. Right here, Paul puts his finger on the problem. What is the origin of this false wisdom? Here we find that the philosophy in view comes from man and not from God. It's according to the tradition of men. Um, the word tradition simply means that which is given from one to another. Sometimes this word is used in a good way, in the sense that the apostles handed down the truth to God's people. We therefore do adhere to the traditions of the apostles. Uh, but the point is, they got it from God, right? They didn't just come up with it on their own. Uh, they received this by inspiration, gave us the New Testament scriptures. In contrast, these philosophies come only from man. That's, uh, that's the problem, according to the tradition of men, what, what's handed down from, from men. And then he says, according to the basic principles of the world. It's an interesting phrase here, according to the principles of the world. There's kind of a, a worldly way of looking at things. Uh, note uh, this phrase is used three times by Paul. In each case, the meaning must be determined by the immediate context. The word principles is the Greek word stoikion. Uh, which uh, means elementary things or basic principles. It's like very simplistic things. Uh, as such, Paul may be describing the system of error put forth by false teachers at Colossae as being ridiculously childish in comparison to the profound and enriching truth found only in Christ. Next page, page 44. <clears throat> However, scholars also point out that this word was used in reference to the elemental spirits of the universe thought of as controlling the forces of nature. So, you know, there's some discussion as to which uh, way to understand that. But note uh, the bold there. The bottom line is, not according to Christ. After describing at some length the nature of misleading philosophy, Paul states the crux of the matter by which all false teaching can be discerned. Namely, it is not according to Christ. Here in this single phrase is the whole issue. The problem is that it is not according to Christ. We are to watch out for whatever does not line up with the truth of Christ. 
The way you discern what is true and what is false is by measuring it up against Christ. Christ is the source and the content of truth. Uh, Colossians 2.9. Another key verse. For in him dwells all, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. John MacArthur says verse 9 is perhaps the most definitive statement of Christ's deity in the epistles. That's a pretty strong statement. There's quite a few statements that relate to Christ's deity, him being God. He says uh, this is perhaps the most definitive, the strongest. If you're looking for God, you need look no further. He is found completely in the person of Christ. Realize the background of this statement in Colossians 2.9. The false Gnostic teachers claim that from the supreme God, there came a series of descending emanations. This chain of emanations was supposedly made up of angelic beings that had something of the divine in them, but not the fullness, not the fullness of God. The fullness of God was considered the sum total of the supreme God and all these emanations. That's the fullness. So when Paul says that in him, meaning Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, he is making a powerful statement of Christ's full deity aimed right at these false teachers. He said the full package of God is found in Jesus Christ. He is saying that the full essence of God is found in Christ. Okay, next page, page 45. Skip that first paragraph. Note this combination. All the fullness of the Godhead. Fully God. That is full deity in combination with bodily. That is full humanity. You see that some false teachers on the one hand denied the full deity of Christ and on the other hand other false teachers denied the full humanity of Christ. Paul says they're all wrong. Christ is fully God and fully man in one person forever. In his person forever dwells the reality of the fullness of deity in humanity, which really is an incredible thing to think about. That he became one of us, a human being, but in that human being is the full representation of God. Now we come to this uh, slide here, hypostatic union. It's what we call it. Hypostatic simply means the essential nature. What is the essential nature of Christ? Well, there's a, an essential union here. He's fully man. He's also fully God. So if I was to say to you, is Jesus God? You would say, yes. If I would say, is he man? You would say, yes. Which is he? Yes. <laughs> He's both. Uh, and you know that there, there's mystery in there. We'll never completely comprehend how that could be. Uh, you know, he set aside the independent use of his divine attributes and was just governed by the Father in that state of servanthood uh, during his earthly ministry. And yet we see his deity on full display uh, on lots of occasions. We're studying this on, we're going to see this Sunday as he's casting out demons, as he has power over nature, over the weather, uh, all of these things. But uh, uh, fully God, fully man in one person. And this is essential to the faith. You cannot compromise this and be holding to the faith. Um, we see both uh, errors addressed at different places in the New Testament. 
Uh, he's fully God. You have to believe that. He's fully man. And uh, this is what makes him so unique. His being full humanity allows him to be our representative. He's our great champion. He's the one that represents us and goes to the cross and pays for all of our sin as our representative. But it's who he is that gives his life unique and special meaning to where he was a worthy sacrifice for the entire sins of the world. There was no life ever like this life. And so you put that whole combination together. All right, uh, page 45 and Colossians 2.10. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. There's a play on words here. The same core word is seen in the word fullness in verse 9 as it is found in the word complete here in verse 10. The fullness of deity is found in Christ and now believers by virtue of their union with him are spiritually complete in every way. Next paragraph. In a sense, we now share in his fullness. All the spiritual resources that are found in Christ, we now have access to so that we may be filled and lack nothing. Come down to the bottom of the page. The verb complete is in the perfect tense, indicating that this is a permanent condition for those in Christ. You can never be incomplete. You are forever complete in Christ. You are complete in him. Next page, page 46. Uh... You know, uh, just real quickly here, and I, I deal with this up earlier there, but, you know, you have a segment of Christianity, and a lot of these people are real Christians, but I remember as a brand new Christian, I was kind of in the, some charismatic circles, and they were saying, well, we think you're saved because, you're, you know, your, your faith is in Christ, but you're really missing out. You don't have all the Holy Spirit. You need to have this tongues experience so you can get the fullness of the Spirit. Well, when I started studying the Scriptures and I came into this verse, you're complete in Him. Like, there's nothing missing here. I'm complete. Don't tell me, because I, I kind of felt like, you know, maybe a, a, maybe a stepchild, maybe. You know, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of removed. I don't have everything. Like, they have it all. That's wrong. That's false teaching. All right, enough of my sermonizing. Let's go to page 46 now. Outside, outside of Christ, a person is incomplete. Skip the next paragraph there. But in Christ, we have total forgiveness of all sin. Christ totally reconciled us to God by his death on the cross. He totally made us God's children. He has given us the total inheritance as we are now heirs of God. We now have Christ living in us, the hope of glory. All that we need to cope with life and death is found in Christ. We're complete. It's all there. You have the full package. He's not holding out on you. There's no second class status here as far as you as a child of God. I mean, it's all incredible. Bold there. Who is the head of all principality and power? Christ is not merely one of the lesser emanations in some angelic chain. No, he is the creator of all and the head over all the angelic realm. And that's what he's, the, the language here, principality and powers, we think relates to the angelic realm. That he, he is, again, the head over all of these things. Uh, skip the next paragraph. Is Jesus enough? Well, Paul overwhelmingly says he is. We are complete in him, and he is sufficient. You can deal with life and death and everything in between with him and find him completely sufficient. C.S. Lewis said, look for yourself 
and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Yeah, there's the spirit of what we're talking about. Colossians 2.11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made, are you ready for this? Without hands. He's talking about a circumcision that's made without hands. What kind of circumcision is that? A spiritual one, right? Not a physical one. Uh, Made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is a spiritual operation performed by Christ. uh, Elsewhere, the Bible calls it circumcision of the heart. Paul in this text uses metaphorical language to illustrate his point. The word circumcised literally means to cut around. Biblically, circumcision goes back to Genesis 17. Next paragraph, Paul makes a major point in Romans 4 to show that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. That's a major part of his argument in Romans, which has the the major theme, the gospel of God. And that circumcision contributed nothing to his salvation. That's Paul laying it out there. Verse, uh, page 47. However, as they went along, the Jews confused the outward sign with the inward reality. Circumcision was just an outward sign that God has entered into a special covenant relationship with these people called the Jews. They got confused, though, and they thought that merely performing the outward sign was good enough. That's all God wanted. But that was never the case. Abraham's example is that faith came first. And then the sign was testimony to that relationship. Jump down to the middle of the page here. Uh, But note two things here. Number one, physical circumcision in the Old Testament was given to the Jews, not the Gentiles. And yet here Paul is speaking to an audience that is largely Gentile in makeup, we believe. Number two, the circumcision in view here is made without hands, that it is not physical. In view is spiritual circumcision at the time of conversion. Uh, Then I've got the bold there, right under that. Note the older manuscripts simply read, by putting off the body of the flesh. And note this surgery is performed by Christ. Putting off is decisive. It literally means to strip off and cast away as one would discard filthy, dirty clothes. It signifies complete removal. In view is the old sin nature, the flesh. That's what I think he's talking about uh, when he uses the flesh here. In conversion, this sin nature has been severed by Christ on the basis of his work on the cross. Now they were circumcised in the past, namely at the time of conversion. As a believer, you still have the flesh, but its ruling power has been severed, which is the point of Romans 6. You're now dead to sin. Okay, uh, let's go to page 48. Top of the page, true believers are those who have had a spiritual operation performed in their heart that has completely changed their relationship with the sin nature within them. Colossians 2.12 Buried with him in baptism, by which also you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, and raised, who raised him from the dead. Paul here continues... The use of metaphorical language, the word baptism, just like the word circumcision, has a literal meaning as well as a metaphorical usage. And I think he's on a roll here as far as the metaphorical usage. And so let's talk about this. There is general agreement that the word circumcision is used, uh, used in this context is in a metaphorical way. 
But some then want to say that the word baptism here is used in this same context in a physical way. That is inconsistent. Paul is not talking about physical baptism any more than he's talking about physical circumcision. Both are used in a metaphorical sense as Paul is describing the believer's relationship with sin and their relationship with Christ. Let's jump down to the MacArthur quote a little further down the page. Some see support in 2.12 for baptismal regeneration. That is, you know, the way we get right with God is we are going through this ritual of water baptism. Uh, But Paul would hardly replace one right with another, arguing that the change from spiritual death to spiritual life is affected by water baptism would make Paul as much a ritualist as those he was condemning. Water baptism is no more in view in 2.12 than physical circumcision was in 2.11. Both verses speak of spiritual realities. That is most definitely my position. Uh, Skip the next line there. Just as outward physical circumcision was to be representative of an inward spiritual reality, so outward physical baptism is representative of the spiritual reality of union with Christ of the believer's spiritual identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. In both cases of circumcision and baptism, the physical rite is just an outward testimony that corresponds to an inward reality. The inward reality is the issue in regard to salvation. And to show you all the more this is true, note what Paul goes on to say. Notice the bold there. In which you also were raised with him through faith. In the working of God who raised him from the dead. Next page, page 49. Note that inserted into this context is the key word faith. How does this union with Christ take place? On what basis does it happen? On the basis of faith. This shows all the more that we are talking about spiritual realities versus physical ones. We are raised with him through faith. That is purely a spiritual reality. Correspondingly, buried with him in baptism is also a spiritual reality. The whole flow of thought is spiritual. Circumcision made without hands is a spiritual reality. Raised with Christ through faith is a spiritual reality. And so consistency demands that buried with him in baptism is also a spiritual reality. All the way through, he's talking about spiritual realities. In metaphorical language, Paul is saying that we are now dead to the flesh because of Christ's work. The old man is now buried because of our identification with him. The whole point is that the believer's entire relationship with sin has been altered because of Christ and our spiritual union with him. Okay, let's uh, skip those next couple paragraphs. Note faith here is said to be in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. This qualifies faith. Working is the translation of a Greek word from which we get our English word energy. It refers to the active power or energy of God, specifically refers to God's resurrection power in raising Jesus from the dead. As believers, we have come to believe in God's resurrection power. We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and that same power has now given us spiritual life, eternal life as well. Okay, well, we could probably have all kinds of questions there, but sorry, we just got 10 minutes. Got to move on. Verse 13, uh, 2.13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's kind of the state we were at spiritually before we were saved. Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. There hadn't been a spiritual operation that resulted in 
a change of dynamic concerning sin. But now he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Here's where we were prior to salvation. Uh, They were dead in their trespasses. The word trespasses literally means to fall beside. It's the idea of deliberate disobedience. It is a violation of God's holy standard. Dead in your trespasses means they were cut off from the life of God. They were physically alive, but spiritually dead. They had no relationship with God is the idea. The word death simply means uh, separation. There was a, they were separated from the life of God. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where they were. They were dead in the uncircumcision of their flesh, meaning their sin nature completely defiled them. In effect, Paul says they were sinners by practice, trespasses, and by nature, the flesh. They were in a state of sin that left them in a helpless and hopeless position before God. But from that state, God has made them alive together with him. Here's the key point. They have been brought into a life union with Christ. And God has done this. Top of page 50, uh, in bold there. Having forgiven you, here's that little big word again, all. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Forgiven is related to the word grace. It means to pardon on the basis of grace. How many of our trespasses has God forgiven? Answer, all our trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Love this verse. Skip the next paragraph. Paul in verse 14 is describing the law. In the Old Testament times, the Jews were under the law of Moses. You know, there were 1,613 laws you had to keep all the time. Thought, word, and deed all the time. Had to be very consistent. Had to watch yourself every step. I'm being funny. Nobody could keep it. Uh, They were obligated to keep all the law all the time. However, Gentiles were also under God's moral law in a different sense. That is in the sense that they were accountable to the law of God written on their hearts. As Paul says in Romans 2. In the final analysis, all people are accountable to the standard of God's glory. That is why the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a glory of God's standard. It's seen in the Mosaic law, that moral standard in the Mosaic law. It's seen in the moral law written on our hearts. All all have sinned and come short of that glory of God's standard. The standard is God himself. And all people have conscience. Down deep, they know they have violated the law of God, which is the holy standard Of God's very glory. Let's go to the next page. Page 51. The word handwriting. Referred to a handwritten note of indebtedness. It was a handwritten record of charges. It was a certificate of debt. That was often signed by the debtor. Acknowledging his responsibility. The point Paul is making. Is that we have broken the requirements of the law. And as such there is a long list of charges against us. Resulting in an unpayable debt. For which we are accountable. How about all your sins. You know just written down in a list. How long would that list be? Would your list be longer than mine? I have no idea. I'm pretty sure both of our lists are very long. In the Roman world, when a criminal was crucified, the charges against them were written down and nailed to his cross. But now for those forgiven, 
All the charges have been wiped out. Wiped out is an intensive word, meaning to remove by wiping off as, as when a blackboard or a whiteboard is erased. Skip the next sentence. The moral law of God, this glory of God standard was a major problem. You see, nobody could live up to it. It was against us, never for us. It constantly shouted, guilty, 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 lawbreaker, lawbreaker. It was never our ally. It was always against us, as he says. Indeed, it was contrary to us. That is hostile to us. It constantly warned of and threatened us with death, and we could never rest. This broken law was always in the way, but Christ has now removed this barrier, taken it out of the ways, in the perfect tense indicating permanent removal. God, in effect, has nailed the charges of the broken law to the cross of Christ, where Christ made full payment in his death for sin. Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Um, Again, principalities and powers consistently refers to the ranks uh, of angels. Made a public spectacle of them means uh, he put them to an open shame. Page 52. Uh, Note there the second paragraph. Note the threefold emphasis. Disarmed, made a public spectacle, and triumphing over them in it. This is total victory. Next paragraph. Satan is still on the loose, but as a defeated foe, his sentence has been handed down and is about to be carried out. Next paragraph. In Christ we are complete. God, through the work of Christ, has done everything to set us free from sin and Satan. It's all God's doing. We don't do it. It's not a matter of sacraments, good works, philosophy, religion, or whatever. The full answer to all our spiritual problems, both related to this life and eternity, all ultimate answers are found in Jesus Christ alone. Next page. We're going to kind of zoom for a couple of minutes here, right? Page 53. uh, Third paragraph down. Paul now deals with the issue of legalism. Obedience to the commands of Christ is not legalism. This is simply obedience in keeping with the new covenant. However, there is legalism. Legalism is man-made rules. Supposedly, you live up to my man-made rules, that will make you holy. And it caters to the pride of man. Colossians 2.16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Uh, The word so indicates that this relates to what has just been said in the previous verses. There the emphasis is that Christ at the cross took care of all the charges against us, defeated the forces of evil. Based on that reality, Paul says, let no one judge you. This is legalism. And by the way, legalism is always judgmental. If you don't live up to their rules, you're condemned. But Paul says, all the charges have been nailed to the cross. The rule book itself has been taken out of the way. In Christ, the law and its charges have been taken care of. It no longer stands between us and God. Uh, Food and drink evidently applies to the Jewish dietary restrictions under the Mosaic law. In Christ, we now have freedom to eat and drink anything we want. Amen? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Page 54. Of course, under the new covenant, there are some qualifiers, such as being sensitive to a weaker brother, uh, not being under the influence of alcohol. And so we have some guidelines in keeping with being filled with the Spirit, which is what we are to be. The point is we're not under a legalistic code in terms of our spiritual lives. Middle of the page there. Um, The real issue is the heart, not the external. Jump down to the bold, or regarding a festival, 
Festival literally means feasts. Uh, um, again, the Jewish feasts in a legalistic way are obligated to keep them. And certain people want to take us back to this. You know, you've got the Hebrew roots movement and all those things. They say, you know, we're, we're still under some of these things in a certain sort of way. What about Colossians? Maybe you want to read that carefully. Maybe memorize it. Uh, or a new moon. Uh, the new moon marked the, you know, the first day of the month. Or Sabbaths. Some people want to say, well, you're still under the Sabbath, you know, and so we, we should get together on Saturday. No, we're of a whole new order now, under a new covenant, and that's why we get together on Sunday and not Saturday. Uh, we could talk about the Sabbath for a while, but let's jump to uh, verse 17, since we got 30 seconds. Uh, Colossians 2.17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. The whole book of Hebrews is really a detailed exposition of this verse. In the law are types and shadows that pointed ahead to the real substance, which is Christ. Uh, jump down to my uh, little illustration under Hebrews 10.1. All these shadows under the law were like pictures. I once uh, went to visit a man who showed me a picture of his fiance. He was so enthralled with that picture. It was all he had and he cherished it, but he knew it was only a picture and that it painted to a substantive reality in the future. Eventually, this man married this woman and now... He not only has the picture, he has the real thing. He has her to have and to hold. Imagine now one day if he said to her, Honey, I've decided the picture is enough. I'm moving out and taking your picture with me. That's all I need. How do you think that'd go? <laughs> Having come to be in a personal relationship with Christ, why would anyone now want to go back to the Old Testament pictures? The shadow served a temporary purpose, but now we have the permanent substance in Christ. Okay, we're going to stop there. Let's close in prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for all that we have in Jesus Christ. It's all sufficient. Lord, uh, you have taken care of everything. Uh, Lord, everything we need in terms of being right with you, in terms of our walk with you, it's all provided in Jesus Christ. This doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ is a major deal. And yet so much of Christianity overlooks it in our day, looking to elsewhere, what the world has to offer in terms of wisdom and so forth. Lord, help us to be firm in our, in our faith and our understanding of who Christ is and all that we have in him. Give us a, a good night now, and as we look forward to tomorrow, we ask your continued blessing on our, our week together in Colossians here. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming out.